Welcome to the Crown Council Mentor of the Month program. This is Steve Anderson. I'm here today to talk with you about something that's absolutely vital to getting significant results of any kind in your career, in your life, and with your team. The subject is goals. Now, after everything that's been said about this subject, I'd like to suggest that together we focus on the most critical aspect, not just the knowing how, but the actual doing. I doubt that I'll share anything today that you don't already know, but if you're like me, you know a lot more than you're actually doing. So consider this a checkup. How are you actually doing in the area of establishing, acting on, and reaching your goals. Over the last 25 years in business, the topic of setting and achieving goals has become somewhat of a science for us at the Total Patient Service Institute and the Crown Council. It's a critical part of creating a culture of success in your practice and in your life. So hang with me for a moment while we go back together to a turning point in my life when I experienced an unforgettable, rude awakening and valuable lesson learned as a result. I was fresh out of college, sitting on my chosen path, my determined direction to build a company with a mission to make significant differences in people's lives, personally and professionally. My business partner, the late Walter Haley, was a great mentor who had built several successful companies. I felt fortunate to be in business with someone from whom I could learn. My work thrust me into a position that was very challenging. Our clients were 10, 20, and 30 years older than I was. Some of them had held executive positions before I was born. Successful or not, these people had been around the block. And I assumed that the years of real-world experience brought perspective that someone my age didn't have. They'd have things figured out. At least that's how it seemed to me. But not for long. Very quickly, I realized that many, in fact, an overwhelming majority of these people were asking the same questions my friends in college had been asking. Questions like, what do I want to do with my life? What's going to make me fulfilled and happy? What's the best career for my future? Now, to that point, I imagined there was some magical age that people reached where they had things pretty well figured out and knew where they were going. But I was wrong, and how wrong really surprised me. Truth be told, I was even a little scared to find out that people as old as my mom and dad could be in the same boat as guys in my fraternity house back in college. The young want elders who are wise and sure of themselves, who know where they're headed in life and why. There are a few very few such individuals. The rest live a lot like a catfish, 
Why a catfish? Well, this humble gill-breathing creature is a living embodiment of life without direction, without goals. A catfish is a bottom feeder. It makes do with whatever drifts down because nobody up above wants it. Leftovers, discards, things you you don't even want to think about. Whatever it finds by accident, it finds by bumping around in the muck. If the fish bumps into an obstacle, it changes direction until it bumps into something else. The only plan in the catfish way of life is to keep on bumping into stuff. Now, you can get by like this, but whatever happens, happens to you, not because you want it to happen. And the path you follow is not by your own choice, but a series of accidents. Maybe this isn't so bad for a fish, but it's no way of life for a human being. And yet, most people do live like a catfish, and it costs them dearly. Of course, actual catfish can't do a whole lot about their no plan, no choice, no goal mode of existence. But a human catfish can, and it can change at will. The key is a word. Speak it, do it, and you'll get on the right side of a dividing line between those who are happy and successful in life and those who seem to drift and wallow in the miseries. This differentiating, defining word is decision. Just make a decision, a decision about something you want, a decision about an attainment, a decision for a place in life you want to get to. Decide that you really want it, whatever it is, and that you'll do what it takes to get it. Now, as simple as that sounds, that's the first step that most people find excruciatingly difficult to setting a goal and starting a new way of working, of personal improvement, of a goal-oriented life. Goals done right should be habit-forming. Start pursuing and achieving them, and you won't want to stop. Over the past 25 years, I formed the habit of asking four questions of the audience at presentations and seminars. Before I start asking, I ask everyone to stand and keep standing until they answer no to any of the questions that I will ask. No means you sit down. So I'm not going to ask you to stand up while you're listening to this, but I am going to ask you to answer each of the following questions. Question number one, yes or no. Do you have goals? Question number two, are your goals written down? Number three, do you review them every day? And the fourth and final question, do you have your goals with you or somewhere where you can see them every day? Now, how'd you do? Here's what we found over the years about how most people respond. Question number one, do you have goals? Turns out to be sort of a a practice question, a gimme. Few people answer no to that question, or at least they don't admit it. After that, however, 
the seats start to fill. By the time most have answered the number four question, only a handful of people are still standing. On average, only about three to 5% of people I've asked have a yes for all four questions. That's three to five individuals out of every 100. The rest have at least one or more no's. However, many more doesn't really matter because one no is all it takes to significantly reduce the chance that a person's goals will be achieved if they really have legitimate goals in the first place. On the other hand, those who have a big, bright yes for all four questions have much greater rates of success. So, no worries if you had to sit down early, hypothetically. Like so much negative baggage, you can dump each no and make it a yes and dramatically improve the odds of success. It's just a matter of doing a few simple things to reinforce your stated goals. The four questions have a role in an off-repeated, quote, fact that shows up in motivational self-improvement literatures and presentations. Authorities in the field make references to a landmark study of Yale University's class of 1953. The year they graduated, members of that class were asked the four questions I put to my audiences and just like the ones you just answered. Researchers tracked the graduates for several decades. Those who were able to answer yes to all four questions outperformed all the others combined. They were a minority, as they are among the people I ask, a small minority at that. But they did more and reaped more rewards for it than all the others put together. Amazing. But the entire story is a myth, a figment, a fabrication, a motivational urban legend. There was never such a study. You can go online. You'll find a link to a disavowal by Yale University itself. Still, the myth persists. There's life in it because there is some truth in it. That truth is borne out in a much less well-known university study that actually was conducted. Dr. Gail Matthews, a clinical psychologist at Dominican University in California, did survey research showing that four factors positively affect success in achieving goals. So let's take a look at the four questions and the critical factors involved in getting the results you want. First, question number one, the gimme. Do you have goals? It's an extremely rare individual who answers no. Nobody wants to say he or she lacks goals. Even do-nothing slackers living in their parents' basements have things in their heads they believe are goals, vague aspirations, things they want, and might as well not want because they really don't have any intention of doing what it takes to get those things. Other people are willing and able, but their goals sit in their heads and gather dust because they have no idea how to get going and pursue them. 
They don't know how to get real, which is the only way to make goals real. Number two question is where the rubber meets the road. Here it is. Are your goals written down? It's tremendously important to set goals in writing. This was shown quite dramatically in the Dominican University Goals Study. Those who wrote out their goals were 50% more likely to achieve them than people who just thought about them. To some, this might seem sort of surprising. Isn't what you think a bigger deal in determining what you do than what you write? No, it's not. And humankind has known this since writing was invented. Remember what Pharaoh said in the wonderful old movie, The Ten Commandments? So let it be written, so let it be done. That wasn't just a good movie line. It's how the ancients conceived of the power of the written word. In the Bible story of the Ten Commandments, God didn't tell Moses to memorize the commandments and read them to the Israelites, did he? No, he dictated to Moses, who brought his people the words that God spoke written in stone. The best permanent data storage medium available at the time, and the same words are read and spoken today because they were in writing. Think something or think it and say it, and it can change even if you don't want it to, just because memory is imperfect. Things in the mind drift, changing to suit present reality. Writing stays written. Now, there's another aspect of the power of writing things down. One of the natural laws that I talk about is called the law of integrity, which says that you naturally want to be who you say you are. People have a strong desire to do just that, to show integrity and be true to themselves. A written goal becomes more than just a thought or a wish or a resolution. It's a declaration, and it becomes an issue of personal integrity. Who are you? Read the words you wrote. You're the person who sets and achieves this goal. In some small part, a goal defines you. Before you write, though, you need to think and be very careful about how that goal is expressed. There are a few very important rules to follow that increase the chances of a positive outcome. On the other side of the coin, you can state a goal in such a way that it makes it actually harder to achieve, sometimes close to impossible, even when you've got a worthwhile goal that's perfectly doable. Here's a case in point. Not long ago, I had a young man come to me in deep distress. He was a college student who might not graduate on time because of a problem that's all too common, especially among the young. No follow-through. He'd start out strong on a required academic work and then let it go, unfinished. The problem went beyond schoolwork. The poor guy had a tough time finishing anything. Things had to change, and he knew it. And he set a goal for himself, which was this. 
I'm not going to quit. He spoke those words to me with great determination, but I winced because he had violated a cardinal rule of goal setting. Those words of his were full of self-sabotage. For one thing, what was he talking to himself about? Quitting. Every time he read the goal and thought about it, there the word would be. Quitting, quitting, quitting. One of our natural laws says that you can't focus on the opposite of an idea. If you're skeptical, I want you to obey this command. Don't think about the Statue of Liberty. Don't. Don't think of the Statue of Liberty. Okay, what are you thinking about? Of course, Lady Liberty. You see in your mind's eye the long flowing dress, the arm raised, holding the torch, etc. The mere mention of the word Statue of Liberty immediately brings the image to your mind. You can't help it. You can't help thinking about what you're telling yourself not to. Nobody can. A goal has to be stated in a positive, desired outcome. It's not about what you want to get rid of or stop doing, but a final result that you want. You can think about it all you want. In fact, you should. My young friend in college could state his goal something like this. On June 17th, I received my graduation diploma with a 4.0 grade point average. Notice, there's not a mention of quitting in this goal. A person with a weight problem, for example, should never set a goal involving not being fat or even losing weight. Losing is negative. No one wants to lose. You'll get nowhere focusing on what you don't want. Instead, focus on what you do want. On June 1st, I'm a healthy, physically fit 130 pounds, for example. That's far more effective. Achieving a healthy, attractive body weight is a win, not a loss, and that's how to express it. Whatever the goal, you want the win. Now, there's a few more points to make about framing and phrasing a written goal. It's important to be specific about results, so achievement will be unmistakable. Now, for example, let's say there's a dental hygienist who gets caught up in the spirit of group goal setting for the practice, and she decides it's her goal to work harder and do more to help the team succeed. Her heart's in the right place, but frankly, working harder is a lousy goal. So let's try this. Maybe she should write out something that says, by August 30th, I average $200 an hour in hygiene production. Does she know where she's going and what it will look like when she gets there? Well, with that goal, absolutely. As this and many other good examples show, there's still a little more to good goal setting. A goal comes with a date when the achievement is reached. A goal is a sentence, first person, present tense, and as we've mentioned, positive. You say and write the, the word I, so there's no doubt about who achieves the goal, you and nobody else. First person. Next, 
present tense removes all doubt about achievement. The deal is done. The mind only works in present tense. At first, the present tense might seem sort of odd, but there's danger in using the future tense because the future never arrives. I will do it can last a lifetime. And for a lot of people, it does. And they don't reach their goals. Okay, then, where are we? We've closely examined the first two of our four questions pertaining to setting and achieving goals. Number one, do you have goals? Number two, are your goals written down? The only acceptable answer to these and the next two questions is yes. At this point, yours, I hope, is yes, too. You have goals and they're written down. From here, we went right into the way we write them. A goal is a desired outcome stated clearly and precisely. It has a time element. You have to reach it by a certain date. You write it in first person, present tense, positive. On October 15th, I do five-mile runs at an eight-and-a-half-minute mile pace. That's a proper goal. Now you know how to set the goal. So what do you do about it once it's set? Question number three gets us started. It asks, do you review your goals every day? If you don't, you need to start right now. Ideally, you'll review your goals twice daily, at day's beginning and its end. It doesn't hurt to take a quick look at your goals in between either. This puts you on the right side of the natural law of frequency, which says that people act on what they hear and see most frequently. In this case, you're hearing from yourself and seeing words you wrote, but the law possesses the same power to motivate. This frequent review is not so much about remembering your goals At this point, I'll doubt that you'll forget them, but it's more about reminding yourself how important the goals are to you and about keeping them high in your conscious and your unconscious mind. You're also reminding yourself to act, do, and get closer to your goals whenever the chance arises. Besides writing and reviewing what you've written, You can have some great entertainment by doing something that we do at Eagle U, our program for high school and college students that helps them get a seven-year head start in their career. That activity is what we call making a treasure map. It's a visual representation of your goals that's a lot like some of the projects kids do in grade school. Here's what you do. You go through magazines and catalogs to find pictures, words, and phrases that illustrate your goals. Then cut them out and glue them into a piece of, onto a piece of poster board. If you do have kids in the house and they see what they're doing, what you're doing, they'll want to make their own treasure map. So let them. By all means, encourage them. Your spouse, too. Buy supplies, stack up magazines and catalogs, and make it a shared family project. This is a way to teach goal-setting without being all parental lame and boring about it. All you have to do is start doing. Now, once with treasure map in place, you have something to look at to reinforce your commitments to reaching your goals. 
Goal orientation that you regularly reinforce has amazing effects. It can change your world. So it seems the world is suddenly on your side, giving you signs of encouragement and new opportunities to get to your goals. Now, this isn't magical thinking. It's psychology and neuroscience. A new focus and awareness reinforce wakes up the reticular activating system. Brain imaging has shown certain areas and cellular connections that respond to specific things in the external environment. The activating system runs in the background day and night. For example, you sense danger and you'll react. It'll even wake you from a sound sleep. The system is programmable, too. People in dangerous situations are much more sensitive to signs of danger and quicker to react. Well, goal orientation is part of positive programming. With goals on your mind, you see all the things that help you get where you're going, and you'll react and take advantage of them. The world hasn't changed, really. You have, and your awareness has, which is just as good. Now, fourth and the final big question about your goals. Do you have your goals written and with you or somewhere where you can actually see them every day? Constant physical presence matters. In the press of everyday business, you can't read your goals every 10 minutes or keep them in mind to the point of obsession, which can actually put goals out of reach. But they're always there, close at hand, in reach. They're always with you. Now, we have all sorts of new, cool, digital ways to keep goals close. You can store them as notes on your smartphone. You can put them on home screens. You can schedule them to pop up at regular intervals. Watch videos of yourself speaking your goals. There's all kinds of apps for this. Can't hurt, right? But I recommend... No. I mean, those things are fine, but I insist that you do it the old school and ultra simple way. Write out your goals on a three by five note card and put it in your wallet or for women, your pocketbook or purse, whatever you call the place where you keep your ID and credit cards, where it's always with you. Though the big ultimate goal is ever-present physically and in mind, you really get to it in pieces a step at a time. Now, at a recent Crown Council event, we invited Jim Hewling, one of the authors of The Four Disciplines of Execution, to share some time with us. You can find his presentation in a previous Crown Council Mentor of the Month program by the same name. One of the disciplines that Jim shares is that you must determine lead measures or the specific activities that get you closer to your goal. Measures has two distinct meanings here. It means steps you need to take, necessary measures, and it means gauging progress. A lead measure has to be measurable. Both get you moving towards your goal in practical reality and just as important in your mind. Now let's take another weight loss goal as an example because I think everybody can relate to it. Here it is. 
On March 30th, I'm a healthy, fit 150 pounds. Now, let's say that on March 30th, you step on the scale and you're 180. This means a 30-pound increase in body weight. Have you failed? Well, you got a very interesting result. You were very successful at gaining 30 pounds. The only problem is that was not the desired outcome. Just writing out a goal, reviewing it, focusing on it, that's part of the strategy. But it's not all of it. You have to figure out your lead measures and start doing what you need to do. Lead measures also make a goal doable psychologically. Losing 30 pounds is mind-boggling. It can feel downright impossible. But it's easy to wrap the mind around your lead measures. Sure, I can get out of bed at 5.30 in the morning and exercise. That's a lead measure. I absolutely can eat six small meals a day, only three or 400 calories each. I can do that and I can measure it. He also suggests creating a scoreboard to track your progress. Marks and numbers on a daybook or a calendar can do the trick. The more ambitious might graph results or make color charts, but either way, you have to have compelling evidence of your progress. A goal isn't some far-off attainment with a big reward when you finally reach it and grasp it. With lead measures, it's progress with rewards that start coming the instant you set the goal and get it in motion. Each little win gives you something to celebrate and feel good about and makes you feel like a winner. In this way, you gain what I call success momentum. Now, you're all familiar with the law of physics, which says a body in motion tends to remain in motion unless acted on by another force. Now, that same natural law applies to us as human beings. When goals are set as a team, accountability is pretty much built in. In a team effort, like, say, a dental office team striving to reach a new level of production or performance, team members are keenly interested in how everyone else is doing. Each team member is either propelling the group forward or holding it back, and people encourage and cheer each other on. But individuals with individual goals have to get other people interested. Keep them all to yourself, and goals are much harder to achieve. What you want to do is share them the way you wrote them and check in on a regular basis to share your progress with someone who wants you to be successful. The academic jargon for a person you share with is called an accountability partner. Accountability is part of the process. People tend to accomplish things when they're accountable to others. But accountability partner might sound too cold and serious. So you might consider those you share with, your fan base, there to watch the scoreboard and cheer for you. A couple more things about goals that are vitally important. Achieving a goal can be a a stretch. Indeed, it ought to be a stretch. But it has to be possible. Now, this goes against some of the old, often quoted wisdom about striving, reach, exceeding the grasp, dreaming the impossible dream, that sort of thing. 
but impossible goals create a pattern of perceived failure, which can encourage inertia, discouragement, and hopelessness. In two words, why bother? Setting unreachable goals has destroyed employee morale and puts companies out of business. With a good goal, you're in it to win it. Though it might take you all you've got, you can do it. But winning at every, any cost can never be the goal. There has to be a balance. While you set goals to achieve more, better, faster, you should also strive to be a better you and help those around you be better. The point is made on the goal card we've already recommended and that we distribute to Crown Council offices and at every total patient service and Eagle U seminar that we do. One side is for accomplishment goals, predetermined quantifiable results by a certain date. The other side is for goals about personal improvement. Now, there's a note imprinted on the card that includes these words, who I am. In order to do, you must also be. Determine who you will be today by setting character and personality goals. Now, would you listen to that? Don't you love it? My baby, a big Harley Davidson Screaming Eagle convertible CVO. I just love hearing it. It sounds like freedom, speed, the open road. Now, I love riding my Harley, but as much as I do, I think Cheryl, my wife, loves it more. In fact, she was the first to go out and buy a motorcycle. We owe our shared passion to the very dynamic dental professional, Dr. Roy Hammond, who is a leading light in the Crown Council and got us into motorcycling. Now, Dr. Roy rolls his passion for writing and his profession of dentistry into an absolutely unique form of recreation and continuing education. His rides are always primo in amazing places like Yellowstone, the Grand Canyon, the Rockies, Hawaii. Roy calls his continuing education company Learning Curves which segues straight into learning about curves, as I did in the motorcycle safety classes that Cheryl and I took when we first got started nearly 10 years ago. Here's an important principle. On a bike, where you look is where you're going to go. So you need to be careful about directing your gaze. This is critical as it has to do with going around curves. The natural indication is to focus on what's in front of you. But on a bike, that's wrong, dangerously wrong, in fact, because bad things can happen if you look directly in front of you while going around a curve. Going around a curve you direct your gaze to the curve's furthest point. If you'll remember to do this, the bike just follows the curve, smooth as butter. At first, you have to consciously tell yourself what to do, which does not feel at all natural or safe, but it works. And pretty soon, you don't even have to think about it. You just do it. 
There's not so much fear in setting and achieving goals, but in utilizing the system you just learned just may not come naturally, just like looking all the way through the curve. But pretty soon, it starts to be second nature. And like a rider going around a curve, you want to keep your eyes on where you ultimately want to go. Direct your gaze. I didn't have to direct my gaze very far to find the hero of the most amazing, inspiring story I know of about the power of goals. In fact, I didn't have to look past my front door. The hero is my oldest daughter, Ashlyn, who in high school joined the swim team. Now, I should explain that our town's high school has the winningest football program in the premier big school division, the premier football program in the history of the state of Texas, where, as I'm sure you know, football is an absolute obsession. Our school's been the best for years with the winningest record. Now, some of the other sports as a result at our school have kind of withered on the vine. As an example, there were only 16 students on the swim team when a new coach was hired 10 years ago. Now, he had big ideas about building a winning swim program, but people scoffed and told him he could never do it because, and I quote, the only thing people care about in this town is football. But the coach paid the doubters no mind. Today, he has seven team championships to his credit and a program with over 500 participants. Swimming is no threat to Friday night lights, but it has become a big deal. Now, that didn't happen overnight. In his early years here, talent did not come to the coach. He had to go out and find it. I'll never forget Ashlyn telling us after school one day in the eighth grade that she was going to be on the high school swim team. She seemed almost as surprised as we were. So what happened was the coach saw her walking down the hall, introduced himself, and told her that she looked like a swimmer. And did she want to be on the swim team? <laughs> she believed him. Now, powerhouse schools had tryouts, but at our school, a kid just had to look like a swimmer. And to this coach, everyone looked like a swimmer. Now, fortunately, Ashlyn did have some natural ability. She was very built to swim. And she did. She got into it, in fact, so much that in her room, posters started going up. Treasure maps were designed with pictures of winning. And then I noticed one day there were all of these little post-it notes with numbers on them representing the times that she wanted to hit. She and the coach would work out the times, train to hit them, then reset them. Those post-it notes weren't on the walls of her room, by the way, either. They were on the ceiling. When I asked her why, she said, Dad, they're the last thing I look at when I go to sleep, and they're the first thing I see in the morning. <laughs> she knew, just knew all these things I've been telling you about, reviewing the goals, the law of frequency, lead measures. She's developed a talent for goals. 
By Ashland's sophomore year, she was on fire, looking like a champion to be. Then one day we got a call. Mrs. Anderson, please come to the school immediately. In a tone that no parent ever wants to hear, we knew it was bad news. The news was worse than Cheryl and I could have ever imagined. Ashlyn had broken her back, fractured in three places, and it happened in the strangest way. She came into the front office, leaned over the counter to pick up some books, and everyone in the office heard three loud, distinct pops, each one a vertebrae popping. We found out later what had occurred. She'd build up so much muscle tone to swim in freestyle, but didn't build the opposing muscles to the degree that they could balance it out. She literally broke her own back. It still hurts to remember Ashlyn's agony and frustration. For a long time, she was flat on her back in terrible pain. She had to fight to regain mobility And she fought even harder against the despair and desperation that set in. Think how this felt to a young gifted athlete who might not be able to swim competitively again. One day, I sat down and explained to her this law. That in every misfortune, in every misfortune, there's an opportunity, a seed of future success. The challenge is to find it and make the most of it. The words were both fatherly and filled with comfort, and they were also a truth that she absolutely needed to know to climb out of the hole that she was in, and only she could do it, and she did. Six months later, after extensive physical therapy, she was released by her doctor to get back in the pool. The coach was cordial and nice as he welcomed her back, but clearly had lost interest in any hope that she would ever be able to do much in the pool again competitively. You don't get injured that seriously and lose more than six months of training and get back in the ranks of elite competitors. But then one day I happened to walk in after practice to see Ashlyn and the coach in an intense, serious conversation as he was writing something down on his large whiteboard next to the pool. As we drove home, I asked her what was up. And she said, I'm doing better than he thought. So we were mapping out my new goals. That night, the sticky notes went back up on the ceiling. Just 18 months later, we were all in Austin, Texas, at the Texas State Championship swim meet. And when she stepped down onto the deck of the swimming complex from the awards podium with a medal around her neck, she sent me a text up in the stands, and it said, Dad, if you told me two years ago when I was flat on my back that I'd be here with a medal around my neck, 
I would not have believed it. She might not have known it, but she must have believed it way down deep because she did everything she had to do to make it happen. So you can see why our family considers Ashlyn a hero. She's our family goals poster child, our living metaphor for the power of setting goals to achieve the ultimate lifetime wins. Whatever your goals, whatever your dreams, I hope you'll follow her example. Decide today to have meaningful goals. Decide today to write them down. Decide today to review them every day. Decide today to carry them with you or have them somewhere you can see them every day. There's power in the process. The future's yours, no matter your age, no matter your income, no matter your station in life. You just have to decide. Decide.